Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams Tertiary Phase This is the story of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Perhaps the most remarkable, certainly the most successful book ever to come out of the great publishing corporations of Ursa Minor. Now in its 7 to the power of 16th edition, it has been continuously revised and upgraded, including being fitted with a highly experimental jog-jog-jog-proof, splash-resistant heat shield. And a sophisticated new voice circuit. Not always with complete success. The earliest origins of the guide are now along with most of its financial records lost in the mists of time and the document shredders of Megadodo publications. But it is worth mentioning, among other things, that every world on which the guide has ever set up an accounting department has shortly afterwards perished in warfare or other natural disaster. So it is interesting, but not very interesting, to note that two or three days prior to the destruction of Earth to make way for a new hyperspace bypass, there was a dramatic upsurge in the number of UFO sightings, not only over Lord's Cricket Ground in London, but also above Glastonbury in Somerset, the very site selected for the new Hitchhiker's Guide Financial Records Office, just hours before the Vogon demolition fleet arrived. People of Earth. This is Prostetnik Vogon Jelts of the Galactic Hyperspace Planning Council. Your planet is scheduled for demolition. So that would seem to have been that, as far as the Earth was concerned. Except that there were three survivors. Arthur Dent had basically assumed that he was the only native ape-descended Earthman to escape from the Earth. Because his only companion, disconcertingly called Ford Prefect, had revealed himself to be a hitchhiker's guide researcher from somewhere near Betelgeuse. And not from Guildford, after all. So when, against all conceivable probability, they were rescued by a ship, piloted by the infamous Zephyr Beeblebrock, and were astonished to find him accompanied by a certain Trillian, once Trissie Macmillan, a rather nicely descended ape person that Arthur once met at a party in Islington, it could only be because their ship was powered by the infinite improbability drive. Which, of course, it was. The regular early morning yell of horror. was the sound of Arthur Dent waking up and suddenly remembering where he was. Islington has that effect on people, even two million years ago. Arthur has been living in the prehistory of the insignificant little blue-green planet where he was born, some two million years later, which is a terribly lonely position for any being other than a member of the species Hurrah Hurrah to find itself in. Members of the species Hurrah Hurrah would, of course, take it in their stride, because they live backwards in time anyway, and find that getting the business of sagging bottoms and death out of the way at an early stage prepares the way for an increasingly wonderful time after your midlife crisis celebration, finishing in a really quite extraordinarily present birth. 
They are also the only race known actually to enjoy hangovers, because they know it guarantees that a tremendously good evening will ensue. Arthur Dent is not, however, one of their number, and takes it hard. He's also cold and damp and extremely lonely. Looks like it's you and me again today, horse chestnut. He hasn't seen Ford Prefect for four years, and life has, as a result, been quieter than an uneventful Tuesday in the petrified dust bowls on the abandoned fourth moon of Narp. In fact, so astoundingly quiet that he hasn't been blown up, thrown out of spaceships, sucked through space, or even just insulted. Except for once, one evening just two years earlier. Evening, Sycamore One. Evening, Sycamore Two. Evening, Ash. Evening, Elm. Oh, be like that, bloody Elms. You try to be polite, and where does it get you? I don't know why. What's that? Good heavens! Look! Can you see what I see? All right, I know you're only a Sycamore. You could at least pretend. It's a spaceship. A beautiful, gleaming, silver spaceship. No, Sycamore One, I'm not imagining it. We can escape. At least, I can escape. I know how that must sound, Sycamore One, but your roots are here. It's landing right in front of us. I'm saved. Dent, that's right. I'll just get my pouch. You're a jerk. What? Arthur Dent, Arthur Philip Dent. What is it? You're a jerk, a complete asshole. Uh. Hey, help. But, but, but. And stop whining, you snivelling little drip. Hey, what is this? Wait a minute. Come back here and say that. Who the hell do you think you are? Wowbagger, the infinitely prolonged, thinks he's a man with a purpose—not a very good purpose, as he would be the first to admit. But at least he keeps him busy, keeps him on the move. For Wowbagger is one of the universe's very small number of immortal beings. Those born to immortality instinctively know how to cope with it, but Wowbagger's not one of them. Indeed, he's come to hate them, and he refers to them succinctly and often as the load of serene bastards. The load of serene bastards. He had his immortality inadvertently thrust upon him by an unfortunate accident with an irrational particle accelerator, oh a liquid lunch, and a couple of rubber bands. The precise details of the accident are unimportant, as no one has ever managed to duplicate the exact circumstances under which it happened. Though many people have ended up looking very silly, or dead, or more usually both, in the attempt. To begin with, it was fun. He had a ball, living dangerously, taking risks, cleaning up on high-yield, long-term investments, and just generally outliving the hell out of everybody. But even the joys of immortality can't last forever. Computer. Yes. I'm incredibly fed up. Oh dear. It's the eternity of these Sunday afternoons I can't cope with. That and the terrible listlessness that starts to set in about two fifty-five. What is the time, by the way? It's nine thirty a.m. in the morning. Oh, well. I mean, I've had all the baths I can usefully have, haven't I? You have indeed. 
And as the afternoon moved relentlessly on to four o'clock, he would enter the long, dark tea time of the soul. And so things began to pour for him. The smug smiles he used to wear at other people's funerals started to fade. He began to despise the universe in general and everybody in it in particular. And thus he conceived his purpose. I will insult the universe. I will insult everybody in it. <laughs> Ridiculous. Is he all right? Look, it's utterly impossible. Think of all the beings being born and dying all the time. I don't care. I will insult them all. Individually. Personally. One by one. And in alphabetical order. There are cakes over there if you want them. He equipped a spaceship that was built to last with a computer capable of keeping track of the entire population of the known universe. Plotting the horrifically complicated itineraries involved and joining up the resultant dots in the hope of randomly drawing a rude word. When people protested further, he would merely fix them with a steely look and say, It passes the time. Computer. Still here. Where next? Computing. Trollfanger. Fourth world of the Fulfanger system, estimated journey time, three weeks. Yes, yes. There to meet with a small slug of the genus Arthur Idenu. I believe that you had decided to call it a brainless prat. Hmm. Uh, what network areas are we going to be passing through in the next few hours? Cosmovid, Thinkpics and Home Brain Box. Any movies I haven't seen 30,000 times already? No. Uh. There's angst in space. I get enough of that at home. But you've only seen that 33,517 times. Wake me for the second reel. All Arthur Dent found to do to pass the time was to make himself a pouch of rabbit skin, which would be useful to keep things in. <sighs> then one day he woke up in his cave, as usual. I know what I'm going to do. Listen. Sycamore one. Sycamore two. Horse chestnut. Willow one. Willow two. Oh, don't stop what you're doing. It's just... You listening, Elm? Well, please yourself. It's just I have an important announcement to make. I have decided... I have made a decision. I've thought about it seriously and responsibly, and all things considered, it's the right thing for me. I feel good about it. And here it is. I will go mad. Good idea. What? I went mad for a while. Did me no end of good. Where did you just come from? Oh, just sitting on that rock watching the sun rise. At least I think it was the sun. Yellow thing, about this big. There it is, look. Where the hell have you been? Oh, round and about. I just took my mind off the hook for a bit. I reckon that if the world wanted me, it would call back. It did. See? The sub-ether sensomatics flashing. Oh, at least it was. Probably needs a bit of a shake. Ah. If it's a false alarm, I should go mad. Again. Ford? I thought you must be dead. So did I, which at least proved I wasn't. Then I decided I was a lemon for a while. I kept myself amused jumping in and out of a gin and tonic. Where did you find a... Well, I didn't. I found a small lake that thought it was a gin and tonic and jumped in and out of that. At least I think it thought it was a gin and tonic. 
I could, of course, have been imagining it. I hope I am. The point is that there is no point in driving yourself mad trying to stop yourself going mad. You might just as well give in and save your sanity. And this is you sane again, is it? I ask merely for information. Oh, and I try to learn to fly. Do you believe me? Look, Ford. Interestingly enough, on the subject of flying, the guide now says... Who? The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Remember, don't panic. I remember finding that easier to obey after I'd thrown it in the river. Ah, but I fished it out. Here. You never told me! I didn't want you to throw it in again. It's playing up as it is. I think something's got into it. What, like gin? No, like it's being updated. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has this to say on the subject of flying. There is an all rather a nap. Oh, Belgium. Hey! Good to see you again, Arthur. I... I... I haven't seen anyone for years. I can hardly even remember how to speak. I keep forgetting... Um... Birthdays? Words! I practice by talking to... What are those things people think you're mad if you talk to, like George III? Kings? No, no. The things he used to talk to. We're surrounded by them, for heaven's sake. Trees, trees. I practice by talking to trees. I've got names for them. I call them Sycamore 1 and Sycamore 2 and... Arthur. What? Insanity is a gradual process. Don't rush it. I'm just telling you their names. We have something else to do. I'm not going to ask, but imagine I have. I don't know, but things are going to happen. I've detected disturbances in the wash. Is that why the dye ran in my dressing gown? The space-time wash. Of course. The new Vogon laundromat on the Bull's Pond hyperlink. Eddie's in the space-time continuum. Is he indeed? Listen! There seem to be some pools of instability in the fabric of space-time. Not to mention the fabric of my dressing gown. Arthur! The difficulty with this conversation is that it's very different from the ones I've mostly had recently, which, as I explained, have mostly been with trees. They weren't like this, except the ones with elms used to get a bit bogged down. Will you listen? I have been, but I don't think it's helping. Oh, dear suffering Zarquan! I... I... Look! Look! The Sensomatic is flashing. Either it's a moving disturbance in the fabric of space-time, an eddy, a pool of instability somewhere in our vicinity. Or a flat battery. The flashes are getting stronger. There! There! Behind that sofa! Why? Is there a sofa in that field? I told you Eddie's in the space-time continuum. Then tell him to come and collect his sofa. Arthur! That sofa is there because of the space-time instability I've been trying to get your terminally softened brain to come to grips with. It's been washed up out of the continuum. It's cosmic jetsam. It's our only way out of here. Come on! It's flying away from us. Towards you, heading off. It's turning towards the trees. After it, watch out for the ditch. Ford, this is almost fun. Whatever that was. What? I mean, it's not often a day goes so perfectly to plan, is it? Damn! Missed it! Only a few minutes ago, I decided I would go mad. And here I am, already, chasing a Chesterfield sofa across the fields of prehistoric Earth, watching out for a non-existent ditch! Ah! Get round the other side! That's it! Jump into it! Come on, Arthur! Jump! Oh! <laughs>
Many speak of the legendary and gigantic starship Titanic, a majestic and luxurious cruise liner launched from the great shipbuilding asteroids of Artifactoval some hundreds of years ago now, and with good reason. It was sensationally beautiful, staggeringly huge, and more pleasantly equipped than any ship in what now remains of history. The Starship Titanic's prototype, Improbability Field, was meant supposedly to ensure that it was infinitely improbable that anything would ever go wrong with any part of the ship. Its designers didn't realize that because of the quasi-reciprocal and circular nature of all improbability calculations, anything that was infinitely improbable was actually very likely to happen almost immediately. Thus, when Starship Titanic was launched, it did not even manage to complete its very first radio message, an SOS, before undergoing a sudden and gratuitous total existence failure. This only encouraged further development. As soon as the insurance underwriters had recovered enough to insert suitable clauses into the relevant policies, the luxury cruiser Heart of Gold was built around an improved improbability drive. Ooh, free out the Heart of Gold! Powered by a sculpted yellow metal nugget of such purity that it was only a matter of time before some reckless two-headed adventurer would attempt to steal it. Hi there. But that was in the days when Zaphod Bieberbrox was young, brash, and terrifyingly electable. And now a word from President Evelbrook. Now he is older, brasher, and not in a mood to entertain the automated systems that once made the heart of gold a play being's dream. Pleased to open for you. Zark off. Thank you. Oh, have a nice day. And ruin a perfectly good hangover. Zayford, you're spilling that everywhere. Oh, fuck. Thanks, baby. I'd better send another one down to check the first one's okay. Weird. It's like my stomach's holding a party and I'm not on the guest list. There's no one chasing us. We're free for the first time in ages. Oh, freedom, yeah. Here I am, Zayford Beeblebrox. I'm the coolest guy since cryogenics. And I've got a girl with whom things seem to be working out pretty well. Are they? I should be feeling extremely hoopy about life right now. Except I'm not. Look, let's go somewhere. Travel. See the universe. Come on. There's nothing the improbability drive can't do. Yeah, like provided you know exactly how improbable it is that what you want it to do will ever happen. <laughs> yeah, what did happen, by the way? You had a double psychotic episode, ran off to Ursa Minor to prove some conspiracy theory, only to be found days later wandering the corridors of the Hitchhiker's Guide building looking for Zani Whoop, a free lunch and a stiff drink. But not in that order. Which proves I was there, right? Well, I wasn't. Wow. Totally too much excitement, adventure and really wild things. <laughs> hallucinations. Hey, the total perspective vortex was not a hallucination. Oh, you had one pan galactic goggle blaster too many. That's not technically possible. How is that going to help? Oh, the third drink is going down to see why the second hasn't yet reported on the condition of the first. You know, looking at you two, I think I prefer the other trillion. Good, because this one's just about had enough. Uh, uh, all drinks, drinks have reported, reported in. Share, Share and, and enjoy. enjoy.
Holidays. One of the galaxy's most unusual holiday destinations is Alosamana Sinica. Mm. The trek from the snow plains of Lisca to the summit of the ice crystal pyramids of Sustantua is long and grueling, but the view from the top is one which releases the mind to hitherto unexperienced horizons of beauty. That'll do nicely. Computer? Hi there. Heading to shipboard computer. Standing by for... New course heading. Alosimana Sinica. You got it. Trillian. Uh, if it was all a hallucination... Yes? What happened to that zarking robot? <sighs> another world, another day. In 14 hours, the sun will sink hopelessly beneath the opposite horizon of Squanchella Zeta. Totally wasted effort, if you ask me. Not that there is anyone here to ask me, so I'll just keep walking around in this very tiny circle for a few hundred years more until my power cells give out. Hello, robot. Oh, hello, mattress. Oh, what's a mattress? You are... Oh! Happy? But clearly you are a very stupid one. We could have a conversation. Would you like that? No. And after I have calculated to ten significant decimal places what precise length of pause is most likely to convey a general contempt for all things mattressy, I will continue to walk round in tight circles. Don't mind me, not that you do anyway. What's a mattress? You are, you are a large mattress and probably one of very high quality. Really? Yes. In an infinitely large universe such as, for instance, the one in which we live, most things one could possibly imagine, and a lot of things one would rather not, grow somewhere. Thus it is that very few things actually get manufactured these days. A forest was discovered recently in which most of the trees grew ratchet screwdrivers as fruit. The life cycle of a ratchet screwdriver fruit is quite interesting. Once picked, it needs a dark dusty drawer in which it can lie undisturbed for years. Then one night it suddenly hatches, discards its outer skin which crumbled into dust and emerges as a totally unidentifiable little metal object with flanges at both ends and a sort of ridge and a sort of hole for a screw. This, when found, will get thrown away. No one knows what it's supposed to gain from this. Nature, in her infinite wisdom, is presumably working on it. No one really knows what mattresses are meant to gain from their lives either. They're large, friendly, pocket-sprung creatures which live quite private lives in the swamps of Squanchella Zeta. They flollop about, blowing bubbles through the water, their blue and white stripes glistening in the feeble rays of its sun. Many of them get caught, slaughtered, dried out, shipped out, and slept on. None of them seem to mind, and all of them are called Zem. Zem? And what's your name of a robot? Uh, Marvin. I value a deep dejection in your diodes, robot. And I blubber for you. Must you? I think you should know that your globbering has not eased my dejection by a single jot. 
You should be more matrissy. We live quiet, retired lives in the swamp, where we are content to flummop and volume and regard the wetness in a fairly floopy manner. If there is anything more unappealing, I expect it's your attention span. We've had this conversation every day since I arrived here. We could discuss the weather a little, Ollie. I suppose so. Ahem. The dew has clearly fallen with a particularly sickening thud this morning. If I had teeth, I would grip them at this point. Would you care to come for a flullop? No. Not because I find the concept depressing, which I most certainly do, but because I've been fitted with this infinitely more depressing artificial leg. As it is just the one steel peg, I can only pivot on it in very tiny circles, gradually digging myself deeper into this swamp. Flolloping is therefore not an option. Voom! I feel deep in my innermost sprung pockets that you have something on your mind. More than you can possibly imagine. My capacity for mental activity of all kinds is as boundless as the infinite reaches of space itself, as opposed to my capacity for happiness. My capacity for happiness you could fit into a matchbox without taking out the matches first. Right. What's a matchbox? Where? Say, Bart, where are you? In the bathroom. What are you doing in there? Staying. How are you feeling? Is that as bad as it sounds? Hey, I was worse earlier. But then I thought I could look for someone in the universe more miserable than me. Halfway to the bridge, I realized that it might be Marvin. So I'm going back to bed. We're parked over at Lossimana's Sinica. It looks beautiful from the teleport room. Sure. We could go down later. Hey, no, thanks. Please. I deactivated all the kitchen synthematics. Uh-huh. I prepared the most fabulous meal for you. Oiled meats, scented fruits. And I've got a first-class degree in mathematics and a doctorate in astrophysics, but we'll let that pass. Say, Fod? I'm not hungry. I've put some on a tray. If you don't want the candlelit supper, you can eat it in bed. Either way, we should talk things through. No. Is that all you've got to say? I'll take that no as a yes. (coughs) Enough! Eddie, activate teleporter. Destination... Planet surface? Random coordinates. Transport me the hell out of Zaphod Beeblebrox's life. You got it! Hey, baby. You remind me of something Ford once said. He spent a whole while stuck on Earth with your monkey race, and they used to amaze him the way they kept on talking. Like just always stating the really obvious, you know? <laughs> like, it's a nice day. Or, you're very tall. Or, wait, what? Oh, dear, you seem to have fallen down a 30-foot well. Are you all right? <laughs> yeah, and he thought if human beings don't keep exercising their lips, their mouths will probably seize up. <laughs> then he watched them a bit more, you know, and, and came up with a whole new theory. Yeah. He said that if they don't keep exercising their lips, their brains start working. Yeah. That is so true. Trillium! Trillium! You'll be back, baby.
What will become of Trillian now she has escaped the gravitational pull of Zaphod Beeblebrock's ego? Where in the space-time continuum are Arthur Dent and Ford Prefect likely to wash up? And what vital issues pivot on Marvin's artificial leg? Find out in the next bipodal part of the tertiary phase of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. In that episode of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, Peter Jones and William Franklin were the book. Simon Jones played Arthur Dent, Jeffrey McGiven, Ford Prefect, Mark Wing Davies, Zaphod Bieberbrox, Susan Sheridan, Trillian, and Stephen Moore was Marvin. Roger Gregg played Eddie, Andy Taylor, Zem, and Toby Longworth was Wowbagger. The announcer was John Marsh. The surround mix was by Paul Dealey, and the live FX by Ken Humphrey. The script editor was John Langdon, and the music was by Paul Wicks-Wickens. The production assistants were Laura Harris and Joe Wheeler. The programme was adapted, directed, and co-produced by Dirk Maggs. The producers were Helen Chatwell and Bruce Hyman, and it was an above-the-title production for BBC Radio 4. Non-orthopedically sprung life forms are reminded that mattresses are the only sentient creatures to require regular flolloping. <laughs> <laughs>